Welcome to another episode of The Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is talking with Jan Rosenau, Director of European Programs at the Regulatory Assistance Project. Join us as they discuss current policies in renewable energy, the current energy crisis in Europe, and how Jan's work at the Regulatory Assistance Project is helping the world transition to a clean energy future. Let's get right into it on The Solar Podcast. Well, we'd like to welcome everyone to the Solar Podcast. We're thrilled today to have Jan Rosenau with us. He's the Principal and Director of European Programs at the Regulatory Assistant Project. He's a PhD. He's a worldwide and well-known speaker. Um, He is absolutely an energy expert, and we're thrilled to have him on with us today. He brings particular expertise, uh, not, not only just around the United States and solar in the United States, but just energy generally. And also, we're thrilled to talk with him a little bit, and I think you'll see us get into this, some of the things that are going on in Europe, which obviously are affecting us here in the United States. Jan, thanks so much for coming on, and I'd love if you could give our listeners a little bit more of an in-depth understanding about who you are and sort of what your background is. Yeah, happy to, and great to be on the show, Dave. Uh, I mean, for your listeners, it would probably be quite important to understand that I'm based in Europe, and I work for RAP, um, the Regulatory Resistance Project, and we're headquartered in the US, but I run the Europe team of RAP, uh, working quite closely with my American colleagues, of course, and I follow what's going on in the US in quite a bit of detail. But my my day job is to really help decision makers in Europe to craft, implement, and evaluate better policies to drive the transition to clean energy. That's the mission that we have as RAP. And my role is to oversee the work that each of our teams is doing on things like um, you know renewables, energy markets, electricity, um, regulation, um, you know, how do we electrify buildings and transport, these kinds of questions I'm grappling with every day. Yeah, and who are RAP's typical customers? Who would be someone that you'd interact with there? So our main audience is the public sector. So it's um, regulators, but it's also government departments. In Europe, it's European Commission. But we also do advise industry and we do advise advocates. Um, if they want our advice, we give them the same advice. But our main target audience are those people who make the policies that affect uh, how fast we can go with clean energy. Would, would you mind going into a little bit and explaining some of what your educa- educational background is and some of the things that you sort of studied over the years? And I think it's particularly relevant for our conversation today. Yeah, sure. I'm, I mean, my, my background, my undergrad was in geosciences, very much um, looking at the environment from a scientific perspective. You know, I did uh, physics, chemistry, um, biology, um, you know, climate science, all of the different pieces to understand um, you know, how the Earth uh, as an ecosystem functions. But I very quickly learned that if you actually want to understand how um, not only what the impact is of human activity on Earth, but how to change that, how to mitigate some of that impact, you actually have to get into economics and policy. So I then did a, a master's degree in London at the LSE uh, in environmental economics and policy, uh, followed by a PhD at Oxford in energy um, efficiency policy was my spe- specialty, but energy policy more broadly. Um, and now that's kind of where I ended up in the, in the energy space, because that's you know, where a lot of the impact, if not the largest impact of human activity lies, is the way, you know, how we produce and consume energy that has the largest impact on the planet. Yeah. And as it relates to maybe RAP generally, which is obviously the, the regulatory assistance project, but then maybe you more specifically, what are the things that you're particularly passionate about as it relates to this subject right now? Well, I, I think the, what's, what really gets me excited is this opportunity of seeing you know, the cost of renewables 
plummeting over the last decade um, and already before that, but that huge decline in costs. I remember very well 20 years ago when I was discussing you know, renewable en energy with, with a, a bunch of German engineers, they were telling me, oh, it's always going to be too expensive. You know, we can only ever have maybe maximum 5% of renewable electricity in the grid. When you now fast forward 20 years and you see the cost in many places of renewables actually cheaper, way cheaper than new fossil plants, um, that's unheard of. And also when you look at some of the electricity systems in the world that have achieved not only 20, 30% of renewables, but you know, 50 or even 60% of renewable electricity, um, that is remarkable. And, and that really excites me. So there's this huge opportunity to do more of that in, in many more places, but also to replace some of the fuels we currently use, especially in the buildings, transport and industry sector that are still fossil fuels largely with that green renewable electricity. So that's, I think that's the opportunity that we have uh, that really excites me because I think it makes the whole system more efficient, makes it cleaner. And if we get it right, it also makes it cheaper. Yeah, I think we're talking about renewables pretty generically. And obviously we're titled The Solar Podcast. So we're, we're strong solar advocates here at The Solar Podcast. But we also want to understand renewables more broadly and all of the um, the ancillary technologies that help to drive renewables. And so maybe you could kind of talk about, uh, so we're not using the term renewables so generically, what are some of the sorts of policies or what are some of the sorts of technologies that you work on um, both uh, individually, but also as, as, as part of your responsibilities at RAP? Yeah, I mean, so solar is, is clearly one of the key technologies um, in that context. I actually just got solar installed in July this year. Congratulations. Um, and it's it's rooftop solar. It's it's a modest installation, I have to tell you. It's a small small house in Oxford in the UK. Um and they don't tend to be very large compared to the US. But uh no, it's 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 great. I mean it it, it solar now pays back um even in a cloudy country, a rainy country like the UK, without any subsidy. Uh you know, we tend to rely on on, on subsidies on feed in tariffs and government grants. But now you can install solar even in the UK, and it actually pays back just because of the economics um, haven't gotten so 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 positive. Um, but I think solar is going to be a tremendous opportunity, not just in Europe but anywhere. Really, we're seeing these huge numbers. Also in China, I just saw the the latest numbers on 2022, the amount of capacity increase, and and solar is is just phenomenal. What what China has done in building out um, solar, you know, most people always think. China is building just coal plants, but when you look at the data, uh, that doesn't tell you that story. It actually shows that China is deploying record levels of renewables. And then wind, um, uh, you know, wind offshore and onshore wind um, are also seen widely in all of the forward-looking scenarios as you're providing vast amounts of electricity. Uh, the cost of that have come down dramatically, um, and we're seeing a huge uptick in the deployment of wind. Um, all over Europe, um, all over the world, and and that's that. I think that's that's really good to see. On the demand side, um, I work a lot on heat pumps. I think heat pumps are uh, one of the technologies that have huge potential, but have been overlooked so far. That is changing now. Uh, and when you couple a heat pump with solar, um, in many places, you can see some real financial benefits of doing that. And I think there's huge potential of you know thinking about these packages of technologies rather than thinking about them in isolation. Yeah, the recently introduced bill in the United States, the Inflation Reduction Act, contemplates or it actually gives a lot of um, value and benefit to homeowners that want to make a transition over to heat pumps. And and, uh, and so obviously many solar companies are trying to figure out how to incorporate that into a more holistic offering. And I think that homeowners 
and businesses and ultimately the climate and, and, and individuals will benefit from that, that sort of transition. That being said, so I talked about a very big piece of regulation that's happened here in the United States. So what are some instances or some examples uh, where regulation has really helped to speed or facilitate the transition to, to clean or renewables um, across? And I would say that globally, but any examples you can give um, here in the United States or otherwise, I think would be great. And I just, just as a little bit of a precursor, I think, you know, my next question is going to be, what are some examples of where regulations got it wrong as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a good example is market access. You know, there's still places in the world where if you're a small producer of renewable electricity, you can't actually sell it on the wholesale market. Um, you know, you're prevented by regulation from doing that. And, in places that have accelerated, have found ways of opening up wholesale markets, to producers of <clears throat> renewable electricity um, and found pricing models, contracts for difference are quite a big pricing model in Europe, you know, where you get uh, paid a, a certain minimum amount, um, but also there might be a maximum amount of how much you get paid. So called two-sided contracts for difference, but they provide um, certainty to investors uh, and de-risk those investments in renewables. Um, so that's been a tremendous success, I think, in reforming electricity markets to enable them to absorb renewable electricity that previously, you know, could not be sold um, at the wholesale level. Um, though that's been a, I think I would say a, a success, and yeah, there's still work to be done. It's not perfect yet, um, but that's been a, a very important lever. Um, your second question: Where does regulation get it wrong? Well, there's so many um, areas still, and it depends where you're looking in which country. Um, but clearly, you know, we still have to do a lot um, when we look at how we price the use of electricity. You know, when when in many places, if you um, plug in your electric vehicle, you pay the, pay the same amount uh, per unit of, of electricity, regardless of whether you charge during daytime hours when there's lots of solar on the system or uh, at night um, when there isn't any solar or in, in, in a windy country, you know, you pay the same whether it's windy or not. And um, that is clearly not, um, you know, gonna set the right incentives. And we're already seeing where you don't have any price signals, time of use tariffs, that people um, make decisions that are actually not very good for the grid, not very good uh, for emissions, uh, and not very good for cost because it costs everybody else more. You know, if they consume during hours that are expensive, the peak hours, uh, and not during hours that are cheap, um, the off-peak hours. So those kinds of price instruments, uh, I think, are still not sufficiently deployed. And they they block. Well, I think what is needed is much more flexibility on the demand side. I think that's a key piece um, that we're seeing now that is needed. But there's not enough incentives yet to make that happen. I think in the U.S. in California, for example, that is changing, and there's now you know much more innovative tariffs. But there's so many countries in the world where you just pay flat rate regardless of when you consume and where you consume. It's interesting you bring up California. That was actually going to be my follow-up question. So here in the United States, at a federal level, I'd say we have a lot of tailwinds that are pushing renewables forward generally. Certainly solar is a beneficiary of that with a 30% tax credit. There are some local incentives that help to subsidize the cost, but generally speaking, it's at the federal level. Um, but I would tell you that many solar integrators or people that are installing solar at the ground level at each individual state are encountering a lot of regulatory uh, headwinds, you know, so and one of those examples would be there's been a real sort of like whiplash effect that's been going on in California, where you had this very favorable net energy metering program, where you essentially got one for one credit for all of the energy that you consumed and used kind of what you're talking about. 
And this new policy, this NEMA 3.0, is going to change California from being probably the largest solar market competing with Texas to it's going to significantly impact the amount of solar deployment. And so again, the regulatory uh, benefits that happen at the federal level haven't changed at all, but at the local level, uh, at the state level, it's a, it's a big deal. I, I should also mention, however, California, for whatever reason, um, we could get into some of those details, but remains the most expensive solar in the world. So if you want to install uh, solar in California, it's the most expensive place to get it, um, propped up at least in part by some of those big regulatory subsidies that that exists. So I'd love to get some of your comments on that. I don't know how deep you've dug into the specifics of California, but um, what are some, uh, maybe some other practical examples, if not California, where you see, you know, these great regulatory benefits on one side, but then they're just ultimately competing against or being canceled out at a local level uh, or at a different, at a different spot. Yeah. I mean, there is a, actually a bad example, maybe not using California, but Spain. Um, in Spain, uh, there was um, a uh, essentially a, 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 a penalty that you had to pay if you installed solar because um, the assumption was that if if you connect solar, you're using some of that electricity yourself, but you're still using the grid, but you pay less towards the cost of the grid. So there was a, a, a basically like a tax, a sunshine, sunshine tax, I think it was called, or the sun tax in Spain. Um, that's now been abolished because it's been recognized that once that was implemented, it was really holding back deployment of solar in Spain. And hey, Spain is one of the sunniest places in Europe, if not the sunniest place. It's used huge potential for solar. And um, because of that, that tax design, it became um, you know, very unattractive. And, and that has changed now because um, regulators have recognized that this is a significant obstacle. Um, but no, there, there, I mean, there, there's so many issues around regulation you know the, the time it takes to get connected to the grid in some cases is very very long uh, permitting is a huge topic in in Europe not so much for solar but also for solar but it's more for wind projects and it can take five years ten years until projects um, from the planning stage to actually being decommissioned get off the ground yeah you know, it's it and those th those time scales are just too long um, and you know there's there's some 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 steps that need to be undertaken for sure. Um, but quite often, um, it's just a lot of bureaucracy that is not always uh, needed. And uh, right now, you know, we're looking at that in Europe to make to shorten those those permitting times to be able to actually meet those really aggressive targets. Because if you have those really high targets on the one hand for 2030 to increase capacity from renewables, but at the same time, you're having those really long permitting processes, which may drag on way beyond the target date. It's very hard to meet those goals, and that's not being recognized by policymakers. Will it actually happen? You know, will these changes be made on in time? I don't know. I, I would hope so. Um, but it's certainly be, become an issue of discussion is now on the agenda. Yeah, those regulatory roadblocks or bureaucratic roadblocks become real inhibitors for the private sector wanting to make investments or frankly being capable of making investments into the renewable space uh, just for fear of regulatory risk. So I'd love if we, if you wouldn't mind helping to make the case for, because I think a lot of our listeners are going to be kind of laissez-faire type of uh, you know people that don't really believe in regulation, want to have completely free markets and free economies. And, um, and I, I think that for the, for the most part, most industries that have seen a lot of solar proliferation, it's been at least in part because there is a free market system. But obviously, there's been a huge benefit from regulation as well. I'd love if you wouldn't mind just for our listeners, if you could make an argument for 
policies and for regulations to help drive these renewables and and why they really are a, a, a you know a necessity in terms of driving forward the proliferation of renewables. Yeah, sure. I mean, let me maybe start from a slightly different perspective here. Um, you know, the, the status quo that we we have in a lot of countries uh, involves already a lot of regulation, but it's regulation that's been designed around uh, an energy system that's no longer fit for purpose. You know, it's very highly centralized energy system. It's often large thermal generators. Um, and uh, that regulation doesn't necessarily lend itself to facilitate um, a much more decentralized transition um, where you have different market actors coming, coming in and offering up solutions. So actually often existing regulation isn't a free market at all. You know, it's it's just designed around a different energy system and a changing and modifying that regulation um, may actually mean more market in many areas, opening up uh, markets for new actors, new entrants to come in and offer solutions. Um, and let me give you one example from New York, actually. This is, um, uh, you know, Con Edison, the, the, the utility that, that is responsible for running uh, parts of New York, they were facing a big problem with um, you know, grid constraints a while back. And traditionally, they would um, you know, just up, reinforce the grid, right? build a new substation um, and things like that. But they decided to take a different approach and go out to tender and run an auction. So if you can come up with a solution to solve the problem, you could bid and put forward your solution. And they did that. And what they found is that uh, the majority of projects were actually things like decentralized renewables, you know, rooftop solar, um, they would be energy efficiency, uh, flexibility, demand response, these kinds of things. And they saved an awful lot of money by doing that, um, by opening it up to, to tender. Um, so that's, I think, is a good example of where, you know, if you, if you make that, um, that kind of approach uh, mandatory, that you go out and you invite people to come forward with solutions and you invite the market to find, find a way forward, you can actually get to a place where it lowers costs for everybody, for all consumers, and you're accelerating the transition to low-carbon energy. And I think that's 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 an example of where you're actually using the market um, rather than constraining it, but you're using it in a very purposeful way, um, mindful of, of of existing constraints that are already built into regulation. So I think this idea of a free market that has no regulation doesn't exist. You know, there's always regulation, especially in 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 such a tightly regulated space like, like electricity. Yeah, I think that's actually a critical point that, that listeners need to understand is introducing new regulation, particularly in the energy sector, is oftentimes um, relieving some of the regulatory constraints that exist within, that, uh, within, within the energy space already. And, and, you know, each, particularly here in the United States, and, and I'm less familiar with how grid management works in, in Europe and the European countries, but in the United States, obviously, uh, you have, for the most part, um, regulate, uh, regulated monopolies. There are a few states that have deregulated power, but for the most part, you have these regulated monopoly, monopolies. And um, it's a little bit of a situation where no one's in the room where these deals kind of sort of happen. I know that they're public, but it's, 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 it's a real black box for most consumers in terms of why energy costs are what they are. And and I would say that you get huge variances as well. So, for example, you take California, which is more of a strained um, grid than some states like Utah, where I'm filming from right now, where energy costs are about a third in Utah what they are in California. 
and oftentimes purchasing electricity from from the same plants, right? Um, and it's just because in California, just to maintain and manage that grid the way that it's regulated, uh, the cost of just transmission there is more than the cost of wholesale power or excuse me, retail power plus the transmission costs in Utah. And so um, I could, we, we, could, we could dive really deep into the complexities about how the regulated monopolies work. But the point that you're trying to make, and I think you make really well, is there's already extensive regulation. What we're trying to do in some examples with policy is to free up some of the regulation to allow new entrants to come in and provide a better way to do energy. And one of the points that you made so well, too, is, is fit for purpose. I, I love that. And we've talked a lot about that in the solar podcast. If we were to start over today and if there was no grid system, would we do it the same way? And the answer is an obvious no. But I would be curious, like if we were to, you know, as, as we go into new countries that don't have established grids, as we expand and there's so much expansion that's happening here in the United States and in other parts of, of the world, what is the right way to deploy renewables now, in your opinion? So we've actually done um, a, a thought experiment um, that we started, I think it was in 2021. Um, we, we, we actually thought, look, you know, why don't we step, step back for a moment rather than thinking about what we currently have and what could we tweak to make things a little better um, or a little less worse? You know, let's think about the end, end goal. So if we want to achieve a 100% zero carbon electricity system by the mid-2030s, that's kind of the aim in, in Europe. And, and also in the US, at, I think at federal level, we've seen similar goals being voiced there to decarbonize most of the electricity system by you know, the mid-2030s, late-2030s. So that's, that's not a lot of time. That's only 13 years to 2035. But how do we actually do that? What's the what's the what what does the system need to look like in 2035 to accommodate that? You know, how do we need to design markets? How do we need to regulate the networks? What price incentives, price signals do we need to send to consumers? Uh, all those questions we looked at and we designed what we call a blueprint, a power system blueprint, um, from a kind of regulatory markets perspective. And you can find it on our website. Uh, if you Google wrap online and blueprint, you find it straight away. And you can click on each of the elements to understand um, oh, what needs to happen in this area and what needs to happen in that area um, with examples, with further reading and evidence. But it's really trying to put all these things together because often you kind of get lost in just one of those aspects of regulation. But if you don't get all these other pieces right, then you may never achieve your goal. So we kind of looked at it holistically with a with a team of experts um, across the whole piece, and and I think it's a really useful thing to do. Sometimes we get so stuck in what we currently have, and and we think that's the status quo, and it's difficult to change. And yes, it is, but it helps sometimes to think about where do you actually want to be, and then aim for that rather than think about what can we tweak today. Yeah, and so during that thought exper experiment, I would imagine that has driven a lot of the work and a lot of the educational piece of what rap does for the public in terms of the sort of, uh, you know, world that ultimately you guys are hoping to, to, to drive and create. So it's, it, in some ways it's, uh, it's the why behind what you guys are doing. Yes. Uh, and, and it's a kind of a, a theory of, um, you know, what are the right policies ultimately that we need and regulations that we need, the market designs that we need, uh, to achieve that transition. What's the end goal? What are we aiming for and why? Uh, you know, why, why, why are we doing that? Um, I think that's an important question. Um, it's not just about, um, oh, let's get a, get a little bit more of this technology deployed next year, but actually, you know, the, what's the system 
uh, change that we need to see to accommodate all of that. It's not just about getting more solar deployed. You know, it's, we also need to think about storage. We also need to think about flexibility, uh, electrification, energy efficiency. Uh, you know, how do we bring all of that together and in a holistic way so that you know these technologies interact well together? They don't they don't um, cannibalize on each other, um, but they actually support each other. Uh, and sometimes that's not the case. You know, sometimes we 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 have policies that are actually contradictory, where you support one thing with one policy that's actually not beneficial to a, another technology that you also want to see being deployed. And and that is really not something that we we ought to be doing. But it happens too often because what we see that in in governments um, and regulators often you have these silos. So you have one p one part of the government agency dealing with a specific policy area. They may be designing a grant program for uh, deploying solar or installing batteries or energy efficiency measures. And then you have another uh, part of government that deals with something else. Um, but they should be talking to each other a lot more and making sure they have a holistic proposition, but that doesn't always happen. So I think that that system thinking is is really important. And we try to take that into all of our work so we we don't just talk about, oh, we need to get this technology off the ground, but actually, how does this fit into the wider system? Yeah. I'm afraid I'm going to show my own ignorance now as we sort of transition and start talking about what's going on in Europe. But I would say that most, and you should you should assume that most of the listeners uh, for the Solar Podcast are here in the United States and are, are going to be in a similarly disadvantaged position in terms of an asymmetry of information. You're going to know a lot more about what's going on there, certainly, than we are. But I'd love to get your take on what's happening, generally speaking, as it relates to energy in Europe. Some of the things that uh, that are happening, some of the critical things that need to happen, and uh, we can kind of start from there. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, Europe has, has, and I'm sure many of your listeners will know this, has for quite a long time had an agenda around uh, renewables, clean energy, um, energy efficiency. You know, we had carbon goals for a long time, goals for renewables, for reducing um, energy demand through energy efficiency. Um, and that is kind of culminated in what is called the Green Deal, um, that's not the Green New Deal. It's it's the Green Deal is is kind of the European Commission's policy package of all of the things that they're doing to achieve those goals. Um, so that was in the works for a long time. But what has really changed is the invasion of Ukraine by Russia in February last year. Um, that has um, fundamentally changed the discussion around energy, uh, and the focus is now much more on energy security, of course. Um, you know, we're just coming out of this winter. There were real concerns as we were going into the winter that there would be physical shortages of fossil gas, you know, that we would literally run out of gas in Europe. And there would need to be rationing. So there would need to be, um, you know, the state would have to tell people you can only use this much uh, and you you guys can use gas, but you can't. And, and, and that hasn't happened. You know, we have not seen that um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one reason is we were lucky that the winter wasn't really cold. It was fairly mild. That helped, of course, because people use less gas when it's warmer because a lot of that is for heating. Um, but what also happened is that you know what many European countries have done and the European Commission has done is in response to the crisis, rather than saying, oh, no, let's stop with, with, with the transition to clean energy, let's stop with the Green Deal, they decided to accelerate because they recognized that if we double the deployment rate of um, you know, solar, of wind, of heat pumps, of energy efficiency. Uh, we, we also uh, you know, accelerate the time it takes to transition away from the imports of fossil fuels from Russia. 
that was very much the narrative. And we're seeing that now playing out in all of the policies that are getting adopted, but we're also seeing it on the demand side. So when you look at the demand for uh, renewables, for energy efficiency, for electric vehicles, batteries, heat pumps, all of that, um, there's a lot of consumer demand and it's growing at a rapid pace. And the industry can't actually keep pace with that. You know, they, they can't um, make the stuff quickly enough um, to actually sell it uh, to the customers. Uh, to give you a specific example, um, from the UK, you know, when you now go to a so to a solar company and you want rooftop solar, you often have to wait at least half a year, maybe a year, to get it installed. Like in the past, the, you know, it would happen very, very quickly. You could get solar uh, in in a in a few weeks' time, um, and they often have seen five, six times more demand, um, you know, ramping up in just one year. So um, that's kind of what happened on the on the demand side. That there's much more awareness because energy prices, and I haven't mentioned this yet, but energy prices have gone up. Um, in some cases, like 10 times more for gas, um, you know, within just a few months' time. And that, that those price spikes have really um, made energy one of the key topics in the, in the discussion in, you know, in, the, in the major newspapers, on, on television. And people are well aware um, that if they do not transition away from, from these fossil fuels, there's a risk that may happen again. So that's, that's what the impact has been. It's, an, it's really an acceleration of the transition towards clean energy. So two questions. The first one, kind of take them in, in order. The first question is, what what are the major constraints that are um, making it so difficult, particularly we're using the UK example, uh, to get solar installed? What's the six-month, 12-month lag? Well, it's, it's a combination of installers, so a lack of people who can actually physically install the kit. Um, and the other constraint is modules, um, just getting a hold of modules, solar modules, um, because yeah, there is there was a real constraint um, in in especially from from because they're made in in, in China mainly, um, and I think that's that's been related to the to the COVID lockdowns in China and and just factory capacity not operating at full scale and increased demand. So there was just a, you know, a long wait time to get orders in, and um, those two factors in combination, you know, lack of qualified installers. And a lack of solar modules really led to this 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 shortage uh, and and the long wait times. Uh, it's not that's not a regulatory barrier. It's really a, you know to do with um, I think supply side constraints and this massive spike in demand. The second question is around Germany. So Germany had previously been lauded and I think applauded um, in the media, generally speaking, as being really forward thinking and and um, and been applauded for its deployment of renewables. Um, but there was a lot of um, there were a lot of individuals both on social media who tend to try to give news out and sound bites. But then just generally, I would say in the media, giving small sound bites talking about how Germany found itself because of this Ukraine crisis in a really disadvantaged situation because of its deployment of renewables. I'd love if you could talk about that um, in a little bit more than just a quick sound bite to help us understand what really happened in Germany and. And, uh, and, and, and what needs to happen going forward to make sure that Germany uh, can continue to be a, a really forward, um, renewable, forward-thinking, renewable country and, and, and never put itself in a position where it might be disadvantaged as a result of making that transition? Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's a great question. Um, what I would say is that it's important for your listeners to understand that most of gas that's being used, and gas is the main fuel that caused the crisis, uh, oil as well and coal to an extent, but gas was the main one, um, is actually not used for electricity production. Most of the gas that is used 
is used for heating buildings. That's the most, that's the biggest sector by, by a significant margin in Europe. And there's also a lot of industrial um, gas use. Um, so the electricity sector is not unimportant, but it's, it's, it's not like that's where most of the gas is going. You know, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a share of the overall gas usage. Um, and then I think the logic of people who claim that, oh, Germany or Europe generally is in this difficult position because of renewables, what I would say is that, well, if we hadn't built out renewables as we have over the last <clears throat> 20, 30 years, there would actually be an increase in gas use. You know, there would be more gas that be, being used in the electricity sector, um, not less. So renewables that we had actually helped us to consume less gas for electricity production. And we're seeing that when you when you look at the numbers, we're seeing that very clearly. Um, and the dependency on on Russian gas imports was very much driven, um, you know, by the um, attractive gas prices that 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 were on offer. And um, it had nothing to do with renewables. It was it was companies making contracts with 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 Gazprom and others to get um, cheap Russian gas because it was it was on offer. Um, and people who have warned against being overly reliant on just one individual country, um, you have not been heard in the past. Um, and you know there were warnings by uh, environmental groups uh, many times saying that you know we we can't rely on on Russian gas imports. We actually need to make sure we become more efficient in our energy use, uh, but we also have more domestically uh, generated energy from renewables so that we don't rely on these imports. But those voices were unfortunately not heard, and that's really changed now. Uh, but I think the narrative, the logic doesn't stack up for me to say, uh, oh, because you deployed renewables, you know, dependent on Russian gas. Um, like, first of all, it's, you know, electricity is a small share. Most of the gas use is not for electricity production. Uh, and secondly, um, the fact that gas imports went up uh, from Russia had nothing to do with renewables. It had all to do with, uh, you know, declining uh, gas reserves in Europe um, and just, you know, Russian gas being really cheap on the market. Um, that, that was the major factor that was driving that dependency. Having said that, um, what many of your listeners might not know is that right now, Germany does not import any Russian gas anymore um, through pipelines. In late August 2022, uh, that's when the last uh, imports for pipelines uh, stopped. Um, so since then, it's 0% through pipelines. Uh, there may still be some LNG um, where there's Russian gas mixed in. I don't know. Um, that's difficult to to find out. <clears throat> but the 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 vast majority of Russian gas is totally phased out now and replaced uh, with a lot of LNG from the U.S. for sure and other places like Qatar. Um, but also replaced um, by you know accelerating clean energy in Europe. So uh, I, I I do not think that ultimately. You know, this is exposing the failure of the German or the European experiment with renewables. And in fact, the this narrative has never taken off the ground in, in, in the European debate. You know, there were commentators in the beginning making exactly that point, saying, oh, now no, we need to dig for more oil, uh, coal and gas in Europe. Uh, let's move away from renewables. But that hasn't happened because every single analyst who's looked at it seriously, you know, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, the European Commission, national government departments, they've all found that the root cause is to do with Russia constraining supplies to Europe. And the main response to that is to accelerate the transition to zero carbon electricity, to energy efficiency, electrification, things like that. And I think you it's pretty easy for any of the listeners to understand that if you can 
re- reduce or completely eliminate as as Germany has with the case of Russia your dependence on you know foreign oil or foreign gas then I think that you actually put yourself in a much more stable situation so uh, the the point with Germany is it hadn't fully made the transition it had mostly made the transition and because it hadn't fully made that transition it probably found itself in that situation where it had to make some fast and quick decisions in order to make sure that uh, the German citizens were able to continue to heat their homes, for example, and, and businesses were able to heat their homes. Um, but uh, thank you for that uh, clarification. It, it it never really it never really intuitively made much sense to me that by increasing the amount of solar production or increasing the amount of renewables, I should say, in a country should disadvantage you in terms of like if there were a crisis, your ability to have access to energy. Um, but uh, I think your explanation is, 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 is perfect, but I'd love if you could. So we know that that conflict is not completely resolved in the case of Germany, they've removed uh, or eliminated their dependence. At least, uh, um, it sounds like, uh, they, they don't get any resources from Russia anymore, but generally speaking in Europe, how have these things sort of resolved themselves and wh- how would you sort of like, uh, explain the state of affairs as it relates to energy in Europe generally? So I think what we're seeing in the short term is, and I haven't mentioned this before, of course, you know, in some places, coal plants that um, were um, supposed to be phased out or phased down um, have come back on uh, in the short term. But, you know, that, that's that's relatively small. Those are small amounts. It's it's sometimes been overstated in, in some of the media coverage um, around this. Um, but it's, it's not surprising that in a crisis situation like this, um, you know, if you're the regulator, you might... Uh, uh, we decide that yeah we're gonna let that coal plant run for another year uh, just to make sure we we don't have a shortage here. Uh, so that's that's some fuel switching happened in 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 that way. Um, but also diversification of supplies. Um, I, I think that we now have three floating LNG terminals in Germany alone um, to be able to import um, liquefied natural gas from different places. So the, the supply infrastructure has changed. Um, but I think what is what that that's that's an that's an important piece in the short term. But in the in the medium and long term, what we're seeing, and we talked about this before, is is this real focus on how can we get speed up to speed? You know, how can we really accelerate? Because in order to replace vast amounts of <coughs> fossil gas um, and other fossil fuels, um, just doing a little bit more of what we're already doing is not going to be enough. And I think that that discussion is now in full swing. So how do we you know, not just double or triple the deployment rate, but actually, you know, quadruple or go even further. Uh, and that discussion um, it, it will be interesting to watch whether, you know, do we actually get the right incentives? Do we get the right regulation, the right policies to make that happen? Uh, will the market be able to deliver on that? I think that's a very exciting uh, journey that we're on. Uh, I, I'm I'm an optimist in, in this. I think um, looking at, you know, some of the big transitions in history, um, you know, they sometimes happened um, very, very slowly, but they often happen very, very quickly. And we get surprised, um, you know, how quickly they happen when we look back. But at the time, people think, oh, this will never happen. This will be very, very slow. I just, you know, just a few examples. Electric vehicles is a good example. Um, yeah, I remember very well, 10 years ago, um, a lot of people were saying electric vehicles will never take off. You know, uh, they, they, Tesla is a joke. They're never going to get to market. Um, and now we fast forward 10 years and we're seeing in a lot of major markets, electric vehicles being like one, one third, um, maybe even 50% or more of new sales. Um, and that has happened in a relatively short amount of time. 
um, you know, we're seeing that in other sectors too. You think of smartphones. Um, you know, I remember very well where the first um, uh, iPhone when it came out. You know, that that was. Uh, um, it was sensational, and and it, it it didn't take long for smartphones to become commonplace. Uh, so I think technology can move very rapidly, uh, and this is what we're going to see, I think, with renewables um, and with other clean energy technologies, uh, especially in Europe, because there's now so much pressure to do that. Um, and and I think the economic case, as we we said before, um, you know, is now so much stronger. What are some of the things that the global we are not doing in terms of trying to drive energy that you'd actually or drive renewables that you'd like to see happen organically. And I'd also love to hear what are some of the policies that don't exist that you think are going to be critical in terms of our deployment of renewables globally, but obviously any, at any local example as well. I think the missing piece um, is still how are we going to um, deal with a system that is um, not just 60 or 70 percent zero carbon, but 100 percent. You know, how do you? What do you do when the wind isn't blowing, the sun isn't shining, and you have an extensive period where it's cold? Um, you know, it's called the kalte Dunkelflaute in in in, uh, in in Germany, and it's it's a term that I think made it even into the English-speaking world um, now. But it's 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 mentioned quite frequently in 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 in, in at least in the English-speaking media in 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 Europe. Um, and yeah, it, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real challenge that needs to be taken seriously. I would say, um, that those periods are not that as long as people often think they are. Um, and the more interconnected you are, the less of a problem it is, but you know, we have to find solutions to balance the system, to produce sufficient amounts of power, uh, when you don't have enough renewables and you still have that demand and, I think that's kind of the missing piece that we will have to start address. Um, and no one has all the answers yet, I think, for, for that. You know, to what extent um, can we actually s store energy for long periods of time? Um, so that, that I think that's a critical ingredient in, 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 in the transition that currently I don't see enough activity around. There's lots of research, there are lots of pilot projects, but I think we have to incentivize um, these kinds of technologies a lot more to really... Um, get to a place where we can have a stable, reliable, uh, and economically affordable energy system that provides clean power uh, 24-7. You know, I think, again, one of the great things about the United States is with the 50 different states that we have, and each state having some control in terms of how it manages and runs, uh, you know, within any given state has its own. You get essentially these little um, experiments that are happening at the state level. I mean, you still have a very strong um, overarching federal government system, but you take the case of like Hawaii, which is an island and has its own very specific needs. And they've actually driven the adoption of batteries there far in advance of any other market here in the United States, uh, or excuse me, in the con contiguous United States. California, with its recent policies, is certainly uh, batteries are going to be a critical component. Uh, one of the things that has really disadvantaged, I think, the United States generally is the cost of deployment. So cost of acquisition and then the cost of actually installing. And a lot of that is just dealing with the permitting. It's dealing with the local bureaucracies. But we're installing, in the case of like California, it's three or four times more expensive to deploy solar than it is in Australia. You know, And the timelines to get solar installed in Australia relative to California is significantly longer. And California is actually fairly fast as, as, as states go in the United States. And so um, how much of the policy that you're thinking about is purely just around trying to eliminate barriers to uh, individuals and businesses 
from a cost perspective? And are there any like major policies that we should be thinking about right now to really help drive the cost of solar down? Uh, that that's not just a pure subsidy, just paying for it at the government level, because ultimately at the end of the day, you know, you're just spreading the cost across the the entire constituent, well, not just constituency, but across the entire base when you do that to the benefit of maybe only few. Um, so how do you think about that? And are there any specific policies that you think should be enacted to help kind of overall keep the costs uh, down? And uh, I'd love to get your take on that. What what I would say is that um, I think it's, it's not sustainable to um, build policy around the idea that you um, subsidize these technologies in perpetuity that you effectively have government pay people to adopt all these technologies because it's not economic otherwise to do so. Um, I think that's not a good uh, proposition. That that is, I think, for very immature markets, you know, kickstart a market, that's fine. Um, and uh, for some customers, like low-income customers, for example, um, yeah, there may need to be support that's ongoing. But I think for the majority of the market, you want to get into a place where you don't need any subsidy anymore because it's the most logical, the most economic thing to do to deploy these technologies. Uh, but that's not often not the case um, because we don't get the incentives right. And then you, you're, you're, you're left in a situation where, you know, because the incentives are designed badly uh, and the cost signals are, are not right, you then have to come in with a subsidy uh, to incentivize the uptake of those technologies, which um, you know, has a cost associated with it for taxpayers um, but it's 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 not a great way to actually get a sustainable market, you know that that and get get that certainty for investors because that subsidy could be taken away uh, every time you have um, a new incoming regulator, you have a ch uh, you have an election. Um, whereas if you get the long term economic signals right, um, I think then you know you have there's a clear path forward, and you know it's this is gonna be a good investment uh, in the long term. So let me give you a specific example. Um, and this this may or may not apply in the same way in the US, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, so what we've done in Europe is that we put a carbon price on electricity. Um, we put a lot of the cost of the subsidy schemes on electricity bills. So customers are paying extra for electricity for all the different energy um, programs, energy efficiency, renewables, uh, and there's a carbon tax on top. Um, we have not done the same for the use of fossil fuels. So if you buy um, fossil gas or you burn propane um, uh, or coal, um, you know, you're not, you're not going to pay any of those, those costs. So what it's done is it has actually made the usage of electricity more expensive, but you know, left those other fuels um, relatively cheap. Uh, and the incentive is, of course, to continue consuming those fuels and not electrify. Um, and then you provide subsidies for people to pr procure an electric vehicle or to buy a heat pump. Um, and those subsidies need to be sufficiently high to, to offset that disadvantage that you then get if you switch from one fuel to electricity. Uh, so that's, that's something that, that is, a, is a politic, that's a decision that you know, decision makers can make and they can decide that they rebalance the way how we tax, how we allocate those policy costs uh, across different energy carriers to create the right incentives and I believe once you have a long-term saving, you know, if you invest in a specific technology and you're actually saving money in the long term, you don't need the subsidies. You know, there would the, there would be financial models. Someone will come forward, as we've seen it with, you know, if you buy a car, you don't pay up, up front. Most people lease it or get a loan 
um, you will see the same thing for clean energy technologies, um, just as we see for other uh, products that people buy every day. Um, but as long as these long-term cost savings are not there, there's no demand driver, there's no clear incentives for people to do it. And relying on subsidies, I think, is is in the long term not not a good way, uh, and it's not fiscally sustainable either. Because at some point, those subsidies will run out, um, and and that's not helpful um, to give that certainty to the market, in my view. Carbon tax credits um, at a few different states or jurisdictional levels. I'm, I know the European Union has much broader Im- implemented these these uh, these uh, uh, essentially tariffs for. Uh, non-renewable energy sources and these carbon taxes, but it's a difficult thing to get right. I mean, so what is the true cost to society that um, if you're generating energy with non-renewables or with uh, carbon emitting uh, technologies compared to if you're doing and using more renewable sources and and trying to get that right so that people are paying their, uh, and for lack of a better term, their fair share for their uh, contribution, negative contribution, I should say, to to the to the environment and 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 to the economy as well, um, but these things are difficult to get right. But um, I think that there is a lot of modeling that can happen. That it's not necessarily demonstrating the the cost of carbon uh, net carbon costs to the environment as much as what's the right amount of tax to drive the right incentives for people to make good and responsible choices. And I think that is something that you can model. It's a lot easier. You don't have to try to get into a science debate in terms of what the impact of carbon is in the environment. You can just simply say, look, this is better and we can subsidize it simply. Uh, we can help to further de- the, the, the deployment and we're not having to use you know, government subsidies uh, to, to essentially pay for um, a, a renewables infrastructure, which is good. I, you know, that you, we could spend one or two podcasts just talking about that, that sort of modeling and that sort of deployment. But I do think that those approaches are the right approaches and, and something I'd like to see happen a little bit more here, uh, in the United States as well. Uh, less of a, you know, a government tax credit and more of a free market sort of a situation where people can make a decision where they want to get their energy and, uh, but they just pay, uh, the, the, the necessary fee for the decisions that they make. And so that's, that's a total free market situation, a free market decision that any homeowner, any business could make uh, where they're essentially just paying for the net cost that they're making to the environment or that, you know, uh, that their non-renewables choices can go towards helping to also proliferate renewables in, in other uh, parts of the, uh, of the, of, of, well, in, in the energy deployment. So again, I think we could talk a, a lot about uh, that specifically, um, I'd love if, if, if you could just talking about, again, I want to get into some real practical examples. We've talked a lot about policy. We've talked about Europe. I think we could dive much deeper into any of those subjects, but I'd love to get your take generally as an expert in energy, just on systems integrations generally. What are some of the things from a systems integrations perspective, um, that you think are really beneficial to individuals, but also to the environment and some things that you guys would like to see happen at RAP and individually things that you're um, particularly interested in? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And um, I think we touched on some of this already uh, in our conversation. Um, you know, it's it's going to be so critical um, as we um, essentially converge, you know, the different sectors are converging. Right? In the past, we had the electricity sector uh, that was quite separate from uh, the transport sector. There wasn't an awful lot of interaction. Um, that's now changing, you know, with electrification, the building sector, the power sector, the transport sector, and the industry sector will 
essentially converge and be much more integrated. Um, and what that means is that we can't just think about um, electrification um, of transportation of buildings in isolation. You know, it's 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 it becomes part of the electricity system, and therefore, if we do it badly, it can create big problems for the electricity system. You know, a good example would be. Uh, people coming back from work um, at six o'clock, uh, plugging in their electric vehicle all at the same time uh, during um, you know, the peak period, um, you know, adding more to the peak, making it harder for um, the system operator to meet that demand, making it more expensive, and um, and and you know, and, and also maybe running fossil generators uh, that are um, polluting um, and and expensive at the same time. Uh, and that can be entirely avoided um, uh, by having the right price signals again. Um, and there, there is real world data on this. You know, in the absence of those signals, that's exactly what happens. People will just come back and plug in at six o'clock, uh, walk away, and and the car is starting to charge. Um, but with the right incentives, uh, and they exist now in many places, also in some of the states in the U.S., um, you get actually a massive discount if you charge overnight, um, or maybe it's during the day when there's more solar. Depending on the location, it will vary. Uh, I do that all, all, um, all, the, all the time with my own electric vehicle. Like we have a time of use tariff, and it's highly variable. Sometimes it, uh, you know, it's it's quite expensive, and sometimes it's really really cheap, and sometimes even negative when there's too much electricity that there's no offtaker for it, and um, and and you get actually paid to charge. That doesn't happen very frequently, but it does happen. Um, and I always use those tariffs, and I would say I reduced my charging costs by at least ninety percent by doing that. Um, and and yeah, you know, that that's and that's not a subsidy. Yeah, it's not someone paying paying consumers for that. It's just offering them the benefit, or at least a share of the benefit that they are um, offering the system if they behave in a certain way. Um, so I think that's that's going to be key to get those incentives right, to get the flexibility on the demand side, to integrate all that new load into the power system in a much more meaningful way that actually helps uh, to accommodate an increasing share of solar um, and wind and, and and other renewables. You know, a good example, I think, of solar is, is Australia, where um, when I talk to people in Australia, they tell me in some areas there's now so much solar on the system, they actually don't know what to do with, with all the electricity because it's produced, um, you know, during hours when there isn't enough demand for it and, and they can't store it yet. Um, so... It's really important to, I think, also create incentives for that flexibility. So you use and store the electricity um, when it's available uh, and when it's cheap uh, to be generated. And you avoid usage, if you can avoid it easily, um, during periods when it's it's more expensive, more polluting. Um, so that's an important piece, I think, that we, we need to get right. And we're starting to see a lot of movement, I think, in that direction um, because it offers really all those benefits to the energy system and and to consumers. You know, if you can save a bunch of money by um, by using an app to charge that um, automatically uh, schedules the charging um, to minimize your costs, um, it's not very difficult to do. Um, and and you you you're actually getting 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 um, a significant saving as a customer. Yeah, you know, here in the United States, one of the all too common questions as we're starting to transition over to electric vehicles is people will ask the question, well, what's the capacity of the vehicle? You know, like that's one of the first questions. But the, tr the, the truth of the matter is, is that that only matters once in a while, right? I mean, for the most part, people are using their cars for 10 to 30 miles a day. And so they, do, they have a bunch of excess energy that they're just kind of driving around with in their car 
for those instances where they where they they're going to need two or three hundred miles. But if they're charging their vehicles every day, most people don't need the full capacity of the batteries. And so, in talking about systems integrations, you know, in California particularly, one of the things that's happening now is we're moving to a situation where we don't have one for one net energy metering with the NEM. 2.0 program moving to this NEM 3.0. So we're having to add demand control and we're having to add storage to be able to store power to, at you know, there will be times where, um, you know, the, the cost for electricity that you uh, export or the export tariff to export your electricity to the grid. And this isn't going to be very common, but it'll be like three or four bucks a kilowatt hour um, to U- US to deploy those kilowatt hours. But then there are going to be other times where you maybe will get a penny um, for a kilowatt hour, which obviously it costs a lot more to generate a, a kilowatt hour than, than one cent. And so, you know, you're kind of net negative if you're looking at it from a pure financial perspective. And so, you know, doing things like integrating your EV, and these are things that haven't happened yet, but could happen very quickly. But being able to use some of the excess capacity in your car to be able to help with demand control at your house and having that be an integrated part of the grid is something that a lot of people are getting really excited about and something we'd love to see happen. You know, people are installing 20 or 30 kilowatt hours of batteries or even as few as 10 kilowatt hours of batteries um, where, you know, there are cars now that have well over 100 kilowatt hours of capacity that are just sitting in their garage. And so having that being an integrated part of the system, I think is something that gets really exciting, right? So now if there's, if, if you're a consumer and you have a 200 mile trip plan for the next day. Well, you can take your, your batteries offline so that they're not part of the grid so that you're not deploying uh, the electricity. So you can have that capacity for that next day when you need to drive the couple hundred miles. Um, but uh, for the most part, most consumers would be able to make their electric vehicle battery capacity part of that system and create a fairly efficient system for being able to deploy, deploy and meet sort of uh, peak demand uh, just by virtue of you know changing cars, not only to being consumers of energy, but also uh, a, a producer or, or rather a storer of energy to be able to be deployed at those high um, uh, demand uh, times. So, Yeah, vehicle to grid, um, as is commonly known, um, is, is I think is taking off, off now finally. It's been talked about for quite a while, but there are now several technology providers that, that, that actually um, do that. Not all car companies will allow that. I know Tesla, for example, I think, uh, are no, not allowing um, bidirectional charging yet where you can feed in? It's less about not allow. It's actually, it's not a super simple problem to solve. So this is something that we've done a fair bit of research on. And and I think it's just something that they haven't solved yet, but it's an, it's an inevitability that they will. Um, obviously, Ford with its deployment, uh, they, they have a bidirectional system, but it's a fully integrated battery and charger and inverter to be able to make that happen. And and Tesla has tried to be more ubiquitous in terms of, of being able to work with multiple chargers and and in and its desire to be ubiquitous in terms of how to charge, it actually created the un, unfortunate, unintended consequence of not necessarily being able to be grid integrated as, as simply, but there's certainly something they're going to solve. I'm sure it's going to come. Um, and the question is how often it, you will actually have to use that, you know, there could also be a scenario where you use it as backup, you know, when you have um, outages and things 100%. like that. I know that there was a very successful ad- advertisement campaign in, in the US um, by a specific car maker that was majoring on the fact that this is an electric vehicle that you can actually use as backup when there are outages. Uh, I think that's an important uh, feature too. So it remains to be seen to what extent and how frequent we, we will use uh, electric vehicles to you know actually feed in to the grid. 
Um, but it's certainly becoming a topic, I think, of considerable interest. And we're seeing a lot of pro pilot projects and testing, you know, what is it going to do to battery life? I think that's always a question people ask. Is it actually worth doing? Because it's not just the cost of charging the car and then you're giving that back to the grid. It's also the lifetime of the battery. And will that degrade? I think that's an open question. I heard some people say um, it's not going to be a major factor because it's a very... You know, it's not a major draw on the battery. It's not like you're pushing down the accelerator uh, on the on the highway. Um, it's it's more like a gentle trickle uh, of electricity. So it's not going to uh, change the battery lifetime dramatically. But other people have have more concerns. So I think it remains to be seen um, what it does to batteries. But if if you know, if indeed it has very little impact on the battery lifetime, for sure, you know, it it it, it can be something that could offer tremendous benefits. Yeah, and there's so many things that we could certainly talk about. One of the things I would love to have gotten into with you, and I'd. Uh, perhaps we're going to have to schedule another time to do some follow-ups, but uh, um, I'd love to have gotten into hydrogen and a lot of other renewables. And I, these are things that I know that you're passionate about and have, have been really helpful with, not only with, the, with your role um, at uh, RAP, but also just in the, in the numerous speaking engagements you've done in terms of creating awareness. It's been an absolute pleasure and delight for me uh, to be able to visit with you today. Um, getting a better understanding of, of certainly Europe, but just generally speaking, the way that policy and regulation play such a critical role in the proliferation of renewable energy. Uh, right now, areas we've got it right and areas we've got it wrong. So thank you so much for coming on the show with us today, Jan. And, and, uh, um, and, and again, we'd love to have you come back to talk about some of the things we certainly didn't have a chance to. I have many, many notes of things I wanted to talk to you about, um, hydrogen, not the least of which. And uh, but, uh, you know, and how it plays a role in, in the overall system as well. Um, but, but, but again, thank you so much for, for coming on and spend some time with us and helping to illuminate um, our listeners on the importance of policy and regulation and also just the general effects that are happening in Europe and otherwise. So th again, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Dave. Pleasure. <laughs>